Last week we started a new series. It's called Plot Lines. That's what we're calling it. And uh, we're calling the subtitle is Plot Lines, the, the stories that tell the story. Because throughout the Bible, what we find is that there are these plot lines, right? There are these recurring themes that run like a thread or, you know, many threads that run throughout the Bible. You know, from the beginning through the middle to the end, they pop up recurring, you know, all the time throughout the Bible and, uh, and all the way through. And when you look at these things, you could call them plot lines, you could call them subplots, whatever you call them, what you find is that each of these things, they form their own story, which tells then the story of the gospel in a unique and compelling way. It tells the story of Jesus. It illuminates aspects of who he is and why he came and, and what he's doing. And so each week what we're doing is we're taking a journey through the Bible, right? And we're going from the Old Testament and into the New Testament, and we're looking at these stories which tell the story of Jesus. Jesus Christ in the gospel, the ultimate story. Now, last week we looked at the story of the lamb. This week, our second week, we're going to be looking at the story of the rock. Now, probably all of you have heard of the Lord of the Rings, right? And you know who the author is. It's a man named J.R.R. Tolkien. And you've probably also heard of the Chronicles of Narnia, right? And you know the author of that was C.S. Lewis. But what you might not know is the story of how um, Tolkien and Lewis, they were both on staff together at Oxford University in the 1930s, 1920s and 30s. And Tolkien was a devout Christian and he led his atheist friend, C.S. Lewis, to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, here's how it happened. In, in September of 1931, Tolkien and Lewis, like I said, they were both on staff at Oxford University. Tolkien was a full professor and Lewis was a lecturer. Now the two men had become friends. They had a lot of common interests, right? And uh, they, were, they were both interested in stories. They were both writers. And one night they went out to dinner with some friends and some colleagues from Oxford. And after dinner they went on a walk together down a, a path in Oxford called Addison's Walk next to the River Cherwell there in Oxford. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Oxford, but uh, I have. It's, it's by far my favorite place in England if you ever go there. I think you can skip London, this is my opinion. Skip London, go to Oxford, it's amazing. Anyway, uh, they're walking there on Addison's Walk along the, the River Cherwell in Oxford and that night Tolkien made an evangelistic move which C.S. Lewis later said in his life was the foundation. It laid the foundation for him turning away from atheism and becoming a Christian. And this is what it was. Tolkien had written a book, uh, you know, a few years before this walk, where he was talking about stories, and he was talking about why it is that people love certain kinds of stories. And his basic premise was this. He said there are certain kinds of stories that people just can't get enough of, right? They, they just want these stories. They, they are these kind of stories, stories that depict a supernatural world, stories that depict being able to cheat death, Right, and escape death, stories about um, you know, escaping aging, escaping time, stories that show us that love is eternal, that, that depict love without passing, without parting, love that overcomes death, stories of good overcoming evil, good absolutely just destroying evil. He says we can't get enough of these stories, we love these stories, about victory snatched from the jaws of defeat. 
sacrificial heroism that brings life out of certain death. We can't get enough of these stories. We pay money to watch these movies. We pay money to read these books and that hasn't changed over time. We love these stories. And the question Tolkien asked was why? What is the reason why we love these stories? And his reason that he gave is he said the reason is, if you look at these things, these are the deep human longings right these are the deep longings of our souls that's why we love these stories we can't get enough of them and he said for some reason right we as human beings we live in an age of reason but even in our age of reason we want stories we 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 need them right we want stories that are well told that get us caught up in them that are captivating and and especially stories that tell you that encourage you that tell you and confirm to you that good will conquer evil, right? That, that there is a supernatural world, that you're not just stuck in time, that there is love without parting, that there is a way to escape death. And Tolkien said, now why is it that people feel that way? And the answer he gave was this. Of course, he was a Christian. He said this, the reason is because we are made in the image of God, but we are fallen. We're made in the image of God, but yet we're fallen, right? And, and weirdly enough, even though we know that the reality of life in this world is that we will all have to die someday, we know that the reality of life in this world is that oftentimes evil triumphs over good. We know that the reality of life is that no matter how much you love somebody, eventually you will lose that person or they will lose you. We're told that the reality of life is that there is no supernatural, but yet, in spite of that, down deep, all human beings feel, we all feel that it shouldn't be this way. We say, maybe that's how it is, but it's not right. It shouldn't be that way, right? We're not meant to die. This is the feeling that we have. We're not meant to die. We're not meant to lose our loved ones. We feel that, lo that good should be triumphing over evil, that there must be a supernatural world, that we shouldn't just be stuck in time until we eventually die and then that's it, right? So the point is this, the reason we love these stories, the reason we crave these stories is because at a deeper level, we believe that this is how reality should be. And what Tolkien said is that the reason we love these stories is because what they do is they actually point to the underlying reality, which is actually more real than reality as we experience it. They point to an underlying reality that's more true than the way that we actually live life in this world. And that's the reason why we still pay money to see stories of, of heroism, heroic sacrifices that bring life out of death and, and evil being defeated by good. We still want to watch those stories. We want to read them because when we look at the reality of the world we live in, we say, well, yeah, maybe that's how it is, but that's not how it should be. And C.S. Lewis, right, he was an atheist at the time. He had been raised in a Christian family, but as he had gotten older and especially gone off to university, he had become an atheist. Uh, he was, again, an age of reason, especially at that time. And the thing, though, he was also a writer. And he, he really connected with Tolkien's writings about the power of stories and these deep longings of our heart that want something more than what we experience now. And, uh, and what Tolkien told him that day, that evangelistic move, he told him that day, I want you to consider the gospel of Jesus Christ. There on Addison's walk by the river Cherwell, he says, 
I want you to consider the story of Jesus. Consider the gospel. And here's what the thing is you got to see. In the gospel is everything that moves us about a story. Everything that moves us about a story. There's escape from death. There's love that conquers death. There's good conquering evil. There's this heroic self-sacrifice. And when everything looks the darkest, life out of death, triumph out of defeat. Everything you want in a story. And C.S. Lewis responded and said, yeah, I see what you're saying. I see that that's true. Tolkien, Tolkien told him this, but here's what I want you to see. The gospel story of Jesus, it's not just one more story which points to the underlying reality, but Jesus is the underlying reality to which all the stories point. Jesus is the underlying reality to which all the stories point. Now, if you would, you please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. Last week, we looked at the story of the Passover. Um, here in Exodus 17, we are looking at what happened after the Passover. We're reading about what happened afterwards because basically, here's the deal. Through the Passover, God set Israel free from bondage and slavery in Egypt, right? They passed through the Red Sea and then they're in the wilderness. So here in chapter 17, now they're in the wilderness. They've come out of Egypt. They've come out of slavery. They've crossed through the Red Sea. And now they're in the wilderness of Sinai. And the first thing they do, if you, uh, you know, scan your eyes over to chapter 15, the very first thing they do, they come through the Red Sea. They're on the other side. They realize we're free. And what's the first thing they do? They sing and they dance. They praise. They worship. They're exuberant. They're ecstatic. They're excited. Life is good, right? You all know what that's like. You, you've... You've experienced something amazing and you just want to sing and you want to dance and you want to thank God. But then what happens next is here's what happens. Reality sets in, right? Um, because although it's good to be free and all, well, now they're looking around and realizing they have a whole new problem, right? They have a logistical problem, a major logistical problem because in Egypt, Although they were slaves, although they were oppressed, and that's, there's nothing good about that, they hated it, right? But the thing is, they never had to worry about what they were going to eat and what they were going to drink. They lived there in the Nile River Valley. There was plenty of food, plenty of water. But now, they got their wish. They're free, and that's good. But now they've got two million people, right? We're talking men, women, and children, and Especially, we're talking about babies and elderly people. And they're in the middle of the desert, right? There's no water. There's no uh, food to eat, you know. Uh, th that's a lot of people to have out in the elements under the sun with no source of shade, no source of food, no source, no, no source of water. So they're in a bit of a bind, you could say. So they got their wish. Now they're free from Egypt, but... But now they're facing a whole new challenge. And isn't that true of all of our lives? Haven't you ever experienced that? that? That you want something so bad, right? You pray for it. You hope for it. You ask God for it. And then you get it. And well, yeah, it's nice. But guess what? It, it, you realize quickly that it brings with it a whole new set of challenges that maybe you hadn't uh, expected or, or thought about. You know, you say, if only... I were married. If only I were married, then things would be a lot better than they are now. And then you get married and you realize 
that although it did solve some things, it created a whole new set of challenges, right? That you have to, that become part of your life. Oh, if I only had a child, if I could only have a child, that's what I want more than anything. God, please give me a child, but then you get one. And guess what? Kids are great, but they're not without challenges, right? And, and oh, you know, if only I could get that promotion. You know, I'm stuck in this place, and if only I could get a promotion, if only I could make a little bit more money, then things would be different. And then you get it, right? And yeah, the money's nice, but you can begin to hate it too because of all that comes along with that new job. Well, that's kind of the situation that Moses and the children of Israel were in. They got what they wanted, but now the reality, the the new normal is setting in. And the kids are beginning to cry because they're hungry. And the people are thirsty because they don't have any water. And the people start asking, what did Moses get us into? And here's something for you to consider as well. As you consider the children of Israel there in the wilderness in, of Sinai, there, you know, after they've come out of Egypt, ask yourself this question. Was it the will of God for Moses and the people of Israel to leave Egypt and go out there into the wilderness? Absolutely. That was God's plan for them, for their future. It was to set them free from Egypt and take them to the promised land. But in order to get to the promised land, guess what? You got to pass through the wilderness. In other words, this is interesting, right? They're doing exactly what God wanted them to be doing, what God planned for them to be doing, but yet they're in the wilderness and there's a lot of difficulty. They're thirsty, they're hungry, they're lacking things, right? And I hope you get that point for your life as well. Even if you're doing exactly what God wants you to be doing, even if you're, you're in the middle of God's will for your life, that doesn't mean it's not gonna be hard sometimes, right? And if it is hard and and painful and difficult, that doesn't mean that somehow you've done something wrong or you're not following the will of God because sometimes God's plan for your life leads you through the wilderness for a time. But here's the thing I want you to see. There in the wilderness, God was with them. And they experienced God's presence and God's provision on a daily basis in ways that they had never experienced it before and in ways that they would never experience it after. Every day God was with them. He took care of them. He was with them as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He provided for them in every need they had in miraculous ways. They never starved to death. They never died of thirst. They were always provided for. And here's the point, not only did Israel survive the wilderness, but they thrived in the wilderness because God was with them. They had everything they needed, they never lacked. Now oftentimes, and that's the story of Exodus and Numbers, right? Oftentimes, they were worried, they were anxious, they got freaked out because they didn't know how or from where God was going to provide for them. But in the end... They always had what they needed. And that should be a great encouragement to you and I. I hope it is for you. That although God's plan for your life uh, might mean that sometimes he leads you through the wilderness, he will always be with you. And it is possible not only to survive times in the wilderness, but to thrive in times of the wilderness. Here's what we read in Exodus chapter 17, starting in verse 1. It says this. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? 
Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it. You shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of that place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So there they are, they're right there out in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing around but rocks, right? But God provides water for them from a rock. Moses strikes the rock with his staff and outflows water for the people to drink. Interesting story, right? Well, fast forward with me, if you would, to the book of 1 Kings. We're going to be going all over the place. 1 Kings, chapter 6. Now, here in 1 Kings, you have another situation. We're reading about the building of the temple in the time of King Solomon. Now, up until this point, the place where the people went to worship God was in a big tent. Is a kind of mobile worship center called the Tabernacle. And the Israelites had built the Tabernacle during their years in the wilderness. And the Tabernacle, again, it was mobile. It could be broken down. And so in the wilderness, they would camp in one place. They'd set up the Tabernacle. And when it was time to move on, they'd break it down. And they'd carry it with them to the next place where they set up camp. And they'd erect it again. But, and they did that for a long time, actually. The Tabernacle was in use for almost 500 years, right? It was the main place of worship it was a tent but now the Israelites have come into the promised land they've settled down they've built houses they've built cities they now have a capital city in Jerusalem and this is what we read in 1 Kings chapter 6 from verse 1 it says this in the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv which is the second month he began that Solomon began to build the house of the Lord and then down to verse 7 it says this when the house was built it was built with stone prepared at the quarry so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built so the temple was just this, this amazing uh, you know, feat of design and, and architecture. It was designed in such a way that all of the stones for it, you know, the massive stones, were prepared at the quarry miles away and then they were brought to the place so that when they got there they would just have to slide them all into place and build the wall without having to use any tools. And it was so precise that they said you couldn't even fit a knife blade between the stones and they'd use no mortar in building the building. It was just so tight, so, uh, so well prepared. But in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul touches on this story of building the temple with these great stones and this is what he says. He says that as Christians, speaking to us, he says, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
Paul is referring back to this story of the building of the temple there in the days of Solomon. He's drawing this picture for us, if you can imagine, that God is building his church. He's building his true dwelling place. And it's, it's not made of brick and mortar, but it's made of you and me and those who have gone before us in the faith. That is the dwelling place that God is building for himself. But here's what he says, and it's important. He says, Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone, the foundation stone upon which it all rests, upon which it's all built. It's Jesus Christ. Now here's an interesting thing we read about this idea of the cornerstone right he tells us Jesus is the cornerstone well here's what we read about the cornerstone in Psalm 118 verse 22 we read this the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone it's a pretty obscure verse right like great they rejected the cornerstone now it has become the the you know or they rejected the stone it's become the cornerstone but guess what this is the most quoted verse from the Old Testament in the New Testament why? Why? Well, here's why. What is, first of all, what's this talking about? It's a, it's a weird thing, right? They rejected the stone, it's become the cornerstone. Well, what it's referring to is this. There was a Jewish tradition, it's not in the Bible, but they believe that this is what happened. That tradition says that during the building of the temple in the days of Solomon, they were bringing these massive stones from the quarry and they were assembling them there on the temple mount, right? It sits on kind of a small mountain there in Jerusalem. And they were doing it. And then there was this one stone, which was kind of an odd duck, right? It was a different shape than the others, and it didn't fit in the building. So the builders, not knowing what to do with that stone that didn't seem to have a purpose, they cast it down the hill, down the mountain, into the Kidron Valley, which sits below the Temple Mount. And it was months later when it became evident that the cornerstone of the foundation was missing that the builders realized that the stone they had rejected and cast away because it didn't fit because it seemed like an odd duck. That stone was actually the cornerstone. That's their tradition. They believe that to be the history of how that happened. And that's what's being referred to here in Psalm 118. Interesting story again, right? But here's the thing. Why does it matter? Here's why. Fast forward with me to the time of Jesus, where we started in, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he says to them, What then is it that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this has become the chief cornerstone. And then he adds this extra kind of caveat to it, right? He says this, he says, Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Over and over in the New Testament, we see the New Testament writers applying this verse, this cornerstone that was rejected. They, they apply it to Jesus over and over. And they tell us that the story of the rejected cornerstone is actually the story of Jesus. Jesus, he was the, the cornerstone, the foundation upon which everything is built. He is the one upon whom everything stands or falls. He was rejected by men. He was cast out. He was thrown away. But in the end, the Bible tells us that everyone will realize that he was indeed the cornerstone. You know, even in our day, I think about the, the region that we live in and a uh, you know, fairly wealthy region, Boulder County and, and part of Weld County right there. There are a lot of people here who are trying to build their life without Jesus as the cornerstone. Jesus told a parable though in Matthew chapter 7. He says, 
Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And what that tells us is this. It doesn't just matter what you build and it doesn't just matter how you build but it matters what foundation you build upon. You can build a great life. You can build a great family full of kindness, full of generosity, and every good quality. But if it isn't built on Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, then it is doomed to crumble when either the storms of this life come or when the foundations are shaken. You know, there was this village near where we used to live in Hungary. Uh, it's really, you know, small rural village, um, really isolated. It was called Kumlu. Right, and so Kumlu is this part of the village was repopulated after World War II. And what they did is that they just gave this land to poor people who had been displaced. They said, you know, here's some land, and they gave them building supplies. Now, a lot of these people, um, they didn't really know what they were doing, and they didn't have any money. So what did they do? They just started building a house, and many of them didn't lay down proper foundations. And, uh, and this part of the village, right, it's right at the entrance, right when you drive into town um, from where we lived, and it is a disaster. I mean, it's, it's terrible um, because these houses, right, they're built 60 years ago, and when they were built, like I said, they were in such a hurry to construct them that they didn't lay down proper foundations. And so these houses, of course, looked fine for a while, perhaps even a decade or two, but eventually these houses collapsed. Others of them have just been abandoned because they're not safe to live in. The point is this, that foundations are super important, right? Jesus says something, something very interesting, again, about this idea of him being the cornerstone, this mysterious phrase, right, which always captivates people, right? Jesus says, I'm the cornerstone, and anyone who falls on me will be broken to pieces. But anyone on whom I fall, I will scatter them like dust. Now, what does that mean? Here's what it means. If you cast yourself upon Jesus Christ, you will be broken. You will be broken because the message of the gospel is that it is only in brokenness that you can come to him. It's only through brokenness that you can receive salvation. It's only in admitting that you're a sinner, that you're desperately in need of a savior, that you can be saved. But if you're not broken before him, then one day you will be broken by him. Either you will cast yourself upon Jesus and be broken before him, or if you refuse to do that, the righteous judge of all the earth will fall on you one day and you will be crushed. The choice is yours, and, and that's what Jesus is saying here, and I encourage all of you that you would cast yourself upon Jesus Christ even today. Cast yourself upon him. Be broken before him as your savior rather than being crushed by him as your judge. Because brokenness before God, that is the way that leads to salvation. Now let me take you to another moment in the life of Jesus. If you would turn with me again to John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, here's, here's what's going on in this chapter. Jesus has gone down to Jerusalem. You know, he usually lived up in Galilee, which was in the north of Israel. But he goes down to Jerusalem, which is kind of in the south. 
And he's gone down there for a, one of the annual festivals, an annual feasts that were part of the Jewish calendar and Jewish life, the cycle of Jewish life, right? And it says there in verse 37, this is, this is what we read. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up. Now the feast being talked about here is the Feast of Tabernacles, which in my opinion had to be like the most fun of all the feasts because right, the Feast of Tabernacles is basically this. All the people from all over Israel, they would pack up their families and their kids and they would walk to Jerusalem and they would have like a big camp out, right? Everybody's living in tents. We're all having a nice time. And during this time, it was remembrance of how their ancestors had lived in tents during their wanderings in the wilderness. So again, verse 37, on this last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts. Again, the feast, uh, the, the feast being talked about is the Feast of Tabernacles. This is the remembrance of the time that Israel spent in the wilderness, right? Which is what we talked about at the beginning, after they came out of Egypt during the time of Moses. And again, do you remember what that big logistical hurdle was that they had to deal with constantly while they were in the wilderness? Water. They needed water. And one of the things they would do during the Feast of Tabernacles was each day they would bring out like this big thing of water and they would dump it out on the dry ground. And it was, it was to symbolize that their ancestors had been thirsty during their time in that dry and barren land of the wilderness, but how God had provided for them, even at that time. Like the time we talked about earlier, right? The, the time when God provided water from the rock. You get it, they're talking about thirst. The whole thing, it's remembering the wilderness, remembering the thirst, they pour the water on dry land. And what does Jesus do? He stands up and says, if anyone is thirsty, and here's what he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And then he says, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. So Jesus is saying, remember that time that God provided water from the rock for our ancestors to quench their thirst? Well, I'm here to tell you today that I am that rock. I am that rock. Just as Moses struck the rock in the wilderness and out of that rock flowed living water, life-giving water, the thing that the people longed for and needed in the same way Jesus will be struck. He will be smitten, beaten and crucified. His body smitten for us has become the wellspring of life. He is the rock. That's the point. The rock is a name which is used for God throughout the Bible. It's a metaphor which is used to describe who God is. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, we read this. I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. But what we have in Exodus 17, right, it was a very symbolic thing describing what would happen to Jesus. God tells Moses, strike the rock and I will cause water to flow from it. Remember what Tolkien said to C.S. Lewis? He said, Jesus is the underlying reality to which all the stories point. You see, the, the story of the rock is the story that God was writing patiently over centuries, even millennia thousand years right 
because the story of the rock is ultimately the story of Jesus Christ. He was smitten so that you could drink the water of eternal life, so that you could live. Whoever believes in him as the scriptures have declared, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In other words, Jesus, right? Not, not only in Jesus, not only will God provide for your needs, provide for the deepest longings and desires of your heart, but God will cause your heart to be so full of life that it will overflow from you, that it will gush out of you, that it will spread to those around you. And the question is, what do you have to do to experience that kind of abundant, overflowing life? Here's what Jesus said. He said, come and drink. Whoever thirsts, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. At the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 22, the last chapter of the Bible, we read this. The spirit and the bride say come. This is the conclusion of the Bible. The spirit and the bride say come. This is how, you know, in summary, here's what you should do. The spirit and the bride say come. And let anyone who hears, let him come. And let anyone who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take freely of the water of life. And that's the message for us today too. You need to come to Jesus. The rock which was smitten for you and cast yourself upon him. Cast yourself upon the cornerstone. You will either fall on him and be saved or he will fall on you and you will be crushed. You need to come to Jesus, whoever you are. If you've never come to Jesus before, if you've never prayed and asked him to come into your life and save your soul, you need to do that. You need to drink of the water of, of life. If you have been a Christian, you need to come to Jesus. It's the same message for you too. You need to come to Jesus that he would quench, not only meet your needs, but quench the deepest longings and desires of your soul. Anyone who's thirsty, come to Jesus, the rock which was struck for you in the wilderness of this world and drink freely of the water of life, the cornerstone, the one who was rejected. Make him the cornerstone of your life so that you will not only withstand the storms of this life, but so that you will stand forever. You know, there was another time during Israel's wandering in the wilderness when God provided for them out of a rock. Did you know that? In Numbers chapter 20, if you got your Bible, you can turn there, but I'll basically sum it up for you. Here's what happened. Numbers chapter 20. It starts in the same way, right? People are thirsty, babies are crying, people need water. And so they start grumbling against Moses, and Moses prays again and cries out to God, God, what am I supposed to do with these people? They're whiners, right? So God tells Moses, he says, remember last time I told you to strike the rock and that water would come out of it? Well, here, we're going to do something different this time. This time I want you to speak to the rock. And when you speak to the rock, water will flow out of it. Now that's interesting, right? So why did Moses have to strike the rock the first time, but the second time he's not supposed to strike the rock. He speaks to the rock. And maybe you know the story that he disobeys. He does strike the rock and, and disqualifies himself from leading the people. But why, why speak to the rock the second time? Why not strike it again? I mean, it worked the first time, right? Well, here's why. Because 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4, for you note takers, check it out. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4. Paul the Apostle says that the rock from which the water flowed in the wilderness, he said that rock was Jesus Christ. He said it's a picture of Jesus Christ. And, and here's the point. Jesus, the true rock of which all the stories speak, he was smitten once, once 
for all time. Once for all time. On the cross of Calvary, he bore all your sins, past, present, and future. He took care of them there on the cross one time. He was smitten once for your sins. And whenever you need his grace, you don't, he doesn't need to be smitten again. You know what you need to do? You need to speak to the rock. Speak to him. Call out to him. Every time you need grace and mercy, you call out to the rock. Every time you need that spring of living water to fill your heart and quench the thirst in your soul, all you have to do is speak to the rock. There on Addison's walk by the River Cherwell in Oxford, on that night in 1931, J.R.R. Tolkien, he told his atheist friend, C.S. Lewis, he told him, consider the gospel. The gospel story of Jesus Christ is not just another good story, but Jesus is the underlying reality to which all the stories point. But that's not the end of the story. Because C.S. Lewis, that, that wasn't enough for him, actually. He wasn't like, all right, I'll do that. No, he said, well, how do I know? How do I know? He said to me, he said, all these stories, they, he said, they seem like silver. Uh, they seem like lies, though spoken through silver. That was the word he used. He said, how do I know it's true? How do I know it's not just another story like all the other stories which stir my heart, but yet, how do I know that this is real, that I should actually believe this? And here's what Tolkien told him. He said, here's why. Because of the rock, that's why. That is the proof that the story of Jesus isn't just another a uh, good story, but it's the truth. You see, after Jesus was crucified, they placed his body in a tomb. It was kind of like a cave, right? And they sealed it with a giant rock, with this great stone. They rolled it in front of it. And on the third day, you know, Jesus' dead body was in that, in that cave, in that grave. But on the third day, everybody awoke to a great surprise. That rock, that massive stone which had blocked the entrance to the tomb, it had been moved and Jesus was not in the grave. He had risen. And the resurrection of Jesus, that historical event, he, Tolkien told him, that is the proof to you. That the gospel story of Jesus Christ isn't just one more beautiful story that makes you feel good for a little while, but eventually the lights come on and you have to walk back out into the real world. No, the resurrection is the proof that Jesus is the ultimate reality to which all the stories point. He is the ultimate reality that our souls know exist. He is breaking into the world. That's what the resurrection was. It's the story that was written on all of our hearts, whether we know it or not. And that's why we're moved by stories about heroic self-sacrifice and love which never ends and a supernatural world and good conquering evil because the gospel story of Jesus Christ is written on our hearts. It's what our souls long for. And the promise of the gospel is that if we come to Jesus Christ and we drink deep of the water of life and we make him the cornerstone, that we too will take part in the resurrection. That one day we too will take part in that reality that we long for, that we know must exist. We will take part in that as well. We will be resurrected along with him. So my encouragement for you today is this. Cast yourself upon Jesus Christ. Cast yourself upon him. Make him the cornerstone of your life and come to Jesus and drink of the water of life because the rock was smitten for you that you might live and that the thirst of your soul might be satisfied forever. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the rock. 
Lord, you are the cornerstone and though you are rejected by some, Lord, we wanna make you the cornerstone of our lives. And Lord, I pray for everyone here that we would cast ourselves upon you. And Lord, we know that with that, if we cast ourselves upon you, we will be broken. Our pride will be broken. Our, self, um, our self-determination, our self-confidence, our, our utter knowledge that we can make it on our own, it will be broken, Lord. But we, we want that to be broken. We come to you and we admit that we are sinners who need a savior. And Lord, we we thank you that you are the rock which was smitten for us that you might become the wellspring of life and then we wanna drink deep of the water. We wanna come to you, Jesus. And today we ask, Lord, all of us who are here that as we believe in you according to the scriptures, Lord, would you cause a river of living water to flow up within us. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.